First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thanks, Agnes. Get your Bibles open there to 1 Peter chapter 3. You're probably just wondering, you know, we're on a relaunch day and you think, man, what are we doing with a passage like this? Well, one of the things we do here at Toon Gabby Baps is we just, we just work our way through the Bible and we let God, in a way, he sets the agenda of what we're going to talk about. And it's just by coincidence that we've come up to 1 Peter chapter 3 today. Um, but let's pray as we come to God's word. Uh, we're going to ask him to help us as we come to a, a, a difficult and confronting passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask now that you will work in us, change us, soften our hearts, so that we know what it is to live beautiful lives in this world, to shine for Jesus, and to have lives that have been transformed by the good news of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Darren. It's great, isn't it? Now, I wonder, though, how, how do you feel? Maybe you didn't feel like shouting out hallelujah when you heard that verse 1 of chapter 3. How did you generally feel when you heard Agnes read those words, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands? Maybe you're here thinking, now, James, those words, in a way, they seem outdated. They're old. They're old-fashioned. They're archaic. They're really, in the 21st century, they're not words that we use, and it's countercultural. They're words that were probably used 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this letter. They were words that are quite comfortable. You think, James, they're archaic, they're old, and what is the use of these words today? They're countercultural. They stand out in this culture. Submit. It's a word like last week, joyfully submitting to the governments. It's not a word that we use every day. But I wonder, how do we feel about that? Or maybe you're here for the first time today... You're here for the first time and you think, man, what have I done turning up to this church? And the first word I hear is, wives, submit to your husbands. Can I encourage you to to hang in there? Hang in there with me today. Hang in with us next week. Keep coming back because we want you to journey with us and learn about how Jesus actually transforms our lives and he shapes every relationship in life. Last week, we learned about joyful submission to the governments, joyful submission in the workplace. And this week, we're going to see that it's going to be in the family. Last week, we saw 
government. Last week we saw the workplace. And this week we're going to see how the gospel shapes the home, the family environment. They seem strange words, but they are incredibly countercultural words for us living in strange times. See, 1 Peter, is, is, it's a book that's written to Christians who feel like they're strangers living in strange times. See, Christians in the, around the mid-60s, people were suspicious of Christians. Today, people are suspicious of Christians. What are they about? They were on the margins of society. They were feeling pressure to live a certain way. And the book of 1 Peter is written to them to know how do we live in this uncertain time? How do we stand firm? At the time of this letter, Nero is emperor. But today we're going to see what it means to live beautiful lives. That's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. How does it look? What does it look like for us to live beautiful lives in strange times? A couple of weeks ago, we saw that it was identity. Number one, it was, we saw that we had this new identity, live as strangers. This is not our home. This is not where we live. But at the same time, we saw that there's this battle raging on within us. There's this rebellion, and it's saying there's a fight that. Is that right? I'm, I'm having trouble hearing. Sorry. I'm, is that right? Yeah. Um, we, we have, we have tr- trouble. We, we love to rebel. But thirdly, we have to live such good lives among the pagans that some, when Jesus returns, will follow him. Some will turn to him. And so that's what we are at today's passage. How do we live such beautiful lives in this world? But before we get to that, I wonder, do you feel, as you heard Agnes read this passage, in, you think, James, he speaks six verses to women, to wives. Did you notice that? And he gives one verse to men. And you think, now is he picking on women here? I wonder if you thought that. Last week he spent a lot of time talking about slaves, but barely any time about masters. Now can I tell you that this is not the case where Peter is picking on women. Actually what Peter is doing is something amazing. This is something really, really beautiful. In the ancient world, you did not talk about women. You did not talk about women. You didn't put them in books. You didn't talk about them. You didn't talk about who they are and what they did. And so for Peter to actually give six verses to women and one to men is countercultural. He is elevating them so high. It's not that he despises them. Actually, he loves them. And he elevates them. That's why he gives them six verses. That would have stood out in this day. That's why he gives six verses. It's a beautiful picture. But how do we live beautiful lives of honour? Here it is, we've got four things. First one is countercultural submission. Countercultural submission. Grab your Bibles, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by their behaviour. Last week we saw that submission isn't it's voluntary. It's not something that's forced. It's not something that's coerced. It's actually coming from a motive from within. Did you notice that? Submit, wives, submit yourselves. It's, it's voluntary. It's being Christ-like. But also, I think what we need to talk to, he's talking to wives here in marriage. Now, what it's not saying is to single women here today that you submit to other men. 
It's not saying that. It's not saying to you that if you're a wife that you submit to another man who's single or submit to another man in another relationship. It's not talking about it. It's, it's, it's really clear here he's talking to the marriage relationship. See, authority and submission, it's grounded in creation. It reflects God's beauty. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created male and female, and they were made in his image. They were equal and yet different. In the garden, they were equal, yet they had different roles. And it was a beautiful dance in the garden. But guess what happened? Adam and Eve, they rebelled, they sinned, and they marred that relationship so that after that, in Genesis 3, we see that male and female want to compete against each other. But authority and submission is a beautiful thing that's been marred by sin. See, Jesus himself, he submitted to the Father, and yet at the same time he's co-equal with the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, and yet at the same time is co-equal with the Father and the Son. But can I say with a verse like this, and it could be in this room, sadly though, there is abusive authority. Abusive authority can exist in the home where people abuse spiritually, financially, emotionally and physically. And sadly that happens. And if you're a woman here in this building today and that is you, can I encourage you to get help? Come and see me. Come and see someone and we will get you help immediately. Because Peter isn't saying here, you need to stay in that. Get help. But it's not only just grounded in who God is and his character. Did you notice the mission element to it? Submission is for mission. See, the primary concern here is, is Peter is talking to wives whose husbands are not Christians. Now he alludes to those who are, but then he says, but if your husband isn't a Christian, have a look there at verse 1, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. See, in the first century, as Christianity moved through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, guess what was happening in homes? People who were worshipping other gods, a wife might become a Christian, or a husband might become a Christian. And in the ancient world, for a woman to become a Christian brought great tension in their marriage. It raised the heat in the room. Because in the ancient world, if a wife worshipped another god different to the husband, it was seen as rebellion. In fact, it was actually seen culturally as shameful. See, in, in our culture, it's quite normal and we're sort of okay with, you know, a husband believing one thing and a wife believing another. But in this ancient world, what happens within the family network, you have a family, a husband and wife with kids with slaves and, and they had the whole family. The husband, if he worshipped the sun god, the rest of them worshipped the sun god. And so for a wife to worship someone else was, was seen as rebellion. It would bring tension to the marriage. See, to follow Jesus would have been seen as an act of rebellion to the husband. 
You'll be seen as a rebel to his position. You, you, know, you can imagine the husband, you know, on a Friday night after they've had the chariot races, they're racing each other in their chariots or whatever they do, racing, racing horses. He's sitting down with his friends and he's sitting there with his mates who are married and his mates would say to him, oh, your, your wife's now a Christian, hey? What's happened? It would be really awkward for him. It would be awkward for him to talk about that. And here, what Peter's saying is, hey, wives, make it easy for them. Submit to them. Because you submit to Jesus means you can submit to your husband. Whereas all the other religions are, if you submit to this, there's no other way around. And we see that Paul talks about this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. He talks about a married couple where one of them becomes a Christian. And he says, don't leave that relationship. But if they leave the relationship, well, you're free to marry again. So there is a reality that because we follow Jesus, we have a new master. And that changes how we live. But I, um, I've walked through this with friends. You know, There's something great and exciting about... Can we just... Sorry, I'm just having trouble. We, yeah, sorry. There's... There's something beautiful when someone becomes a Christian. When a wife becomes a Christian, that is something filled with joy. But at the same time, I've been there in that situation where I've seen people become a Christian, but their husband doesn't. And you have to walk them through this process. We have to walk through this process where they have to learn how to live with that. They feel that pressure of a husband who says, you know what, you seem to love Jesus more than you love me. They're trying to work out what it means as they want to go to church and the husband says, but I want you to spend time with me. And you've got to walk, that, you've got to walk through that with a Christian wife or a Christian husband in a beautiful way. But here, what it's saying is don't rebel in a way that it looks terrible. It's, it's beautiful as you love them. And don't overwhelm them with words. Now, as a, as a wife who becomes a Christian, you might be going, I want to tell, about, tell Jesus to them every day. In a married relationship with you both, you're happy to talk about Jesus. But a husband who's not might go, man, you're always talking to me about Jesus. As that wife is just haggling, you need to know Jesus, you need to know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. Now we do need to do that, right? But what Peter's saying is saying, hang on, be careful. Don't necessarily haggle him with words, but may your life show it. May your character show through your actions what it is, a gentle spirit. An attitude of grace and submission. Not seeking to shame or belittle, but seeking to love him. Because see, submission is being just like Jesus. In, in Matthew, it, it says, um, he says, he says I'm... Um, in, in Matthew, Jesus reminds us that he is gentle and meek. Come to me, all who are wearied. I am gentle and meek. And, and what Peter's doing is he's saying to wives, he says, be like that. It's applauding. He's applauding a wife who comes to Christ to live the best she can to strengthen her marriage and not undermine it. Countercultural submission. Now, but, but so it actually flips it too, doesn't it? We can flip this passage because it actually asks the pointed question to us as men. It actually asks the pointed question to us as husbands are we actually worthy? of respect and honour? Do we live in a way that brings honour and respect? Are we people worthy of submission? 
It's not a passage where you demand it. Countercultural submission. But secondly, countercultural beauty in verses 3 to 4. Countercultural beauty. I think not only are women today, not only are women under extreme, extreme pressure to look beautiful, but I think men are starting to face the same extremes where we are being told we need to look beautiful. You know, the amazing haircuts, the amazing gold, the amazing jewellery, the, the amazing jeans. You know, last week I was at West Point and the Pandora shop was packed and lined out the back. People wanting to buy jewellery because of the Black, Black Friday specials. People were all out at Blacktown last week buying clothes, clothes, jeans, hats, getting haircuts. On the 4th of December, I was reading an article from the Daily Telegraph that says that this year, this time compared to last year, there's been a spike. It's turned around. There's a big spike. That people are now, this Christmas, buying clothes, jewellery. Why? Because we can socialise. You know, people weren't really buying clothes and jewellery during lockdown. But now we can socialise. Guess what? We've got to look good. We've got to leave an impression. Every time I walk into a Westfields, every time I turn the TV on, I am bombarded. You are bombarded with photoshopped women on billboards. Photoshopped men with six packs and great pecs. Fashionable hair and great jewellery. And they're all saying at that moment, they're saying to every single one of us, You don't measure up. You do not measure up. You will never measure up until you look like this because our world sees beauty as external. Have a look at verse 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from... He's still talking to the, the wives here. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. But as we read this, I think there's lessons here for us as men as well. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of an inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, if you, really, if you read a different translation, it's pretty confronting because it makes you think, right? Oh, I can't wear gold jewellery. So what I'll do is I'll pass the bucket around now and you can put all your gold jewellery in the bucket and we'll take it and we'll cash it in and we'll put it in the offering. Right, we can do that. Now, if you've got braided hair, you're in trouble today. I've got a comb out the back. Take the braids out and you can straighten your hair. And I'm sure we can work at something like that. Now, if we were to take this passage literally, now the NIV sort of helps with it for us, but if you were to take it literally, it actually means that none of us should be wearing clothes either. So are we, you know, so what's Peter really getting on about? Is he saying to us, don't wear jewelry, don't braid your hair? Are we meant to take it that literally? Well, we've got to be careful. He's not, saying it's not, he's not saying it's not okay to have braids. He's not saying it's not okay to wear jewellery. He's not saying it's not okay to wear good clothes. But there's a bigger point going on here because of two reasons. I think there's two reasons. Culturally, there's a couple of reasons. Here they are. The first one is, isn't this culture in 60 AD, women who went out in public with jewellery and braided hair, it was a way to go out and seduce and to manipulate it was, it was seen as seducive and deceptive. You know, if your husband's at home and your wife goes out on her own, they didn't very rarely go out, right, without their husband. But imagine this, a woman goes out with jewellery and braided hair and other people see her out, they're thinking, I wonder what she's going out to do. She's going out to seduce, to score. Or even what's worse is, you know, a, a Christian woman who wants to go to church on a Sunday goes out on her home because her husband doesn't want to come and she's wearing gold jewellery and braids. It'll be seen as rebellious to her husband. 
It's seen as seduction. Like you know, we even see it in our culture, don't we? Friday nights, men dress up. Friday nights, women dress up to score. But not only does it, it's a picture of seduction, but secondly, it's also a picture of wealth and status. Sometimes you'd wear things like this to elevate yourself in culture so that you would get higher and higher. It was used to obtain wealth. It was used to obtain standing and identity in this world. But you know what's so beautiful about these six verses? Is that Peter, in this text, values women more highly, of more value, and he views them as equal and people created in God's image worthy of respect and dignity. We have TV shows, we have billboards and bikinis on shelves and all these things of you know, photo-touched up people. And what they're doing is they're stealing our souls out of young people and old people thinking that it's, your identity is found in what you wear. But it's the soul that God cares about. Do you notice that? It's, it's actually not the outward appearance, but it's the inner. You know, the Lord God, he speaks through Samuel. He says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, God looks at the heart. He's not looking at the externals, but yet our world looks at the externals, and yet the reality is it fades away. I don't know about you, but I'm 37, and I'm losing hair. My black hair is going grey, and I'm only 37. No matter how hard I try, it's not going to stop. We can spend thousands of dollars on cosmetic surgery, but guess what? You're still going to age. I cannot stop the wrinkles from coming. I'll go bored, and I'll smell, and I'll be wrinkly. It's, it's, it's profound, isn't it? That that's, in things that are good, we make them God things. But I want to ask this question, one question. If you were to tally all the hours that you spend dressing right, adorning the outside, wearing the right clothes and the right jewellery, if you were to tally all those hours up and to then tally them against the time that you spend on your soul, your character and your walk with God, what would it show about what matters most to you? I wonder if we have bought the cultural storyline more than we've actually realised. But how freeing is this passage for us? How freeing is it for young women who are teenagers? How freeing is it for young men even to go that it's actually the internal, not the external? You know, that conversation where your teenage daughter comes and says, hey, mum, that probably won't ask for Nike shoes. The boys will ask for Nike shoes. But, you know, the girl, mum, I really want this so that I fit in at school. But in the context, what a witness to an, unbelieving wife, to an unbelieving husband to see that his wife is not finding her value and her identity in clothes. Jewelry and makeup like the surrounding world. I wonder as we spend one hour adorning the externals, are we willing to spend one hour adorning the internal, the soul, the character, your humility? Because one will last, won't it? Your soul will, but your physical body won't. 
but will we spend time adorning yourself with gentleness and a quiet spirit? He just said that he talks to these wives and he says, adorn yourself with a gentleness and a quiet spirit. Now the introverts, the introverted women in this and the introverted men will go, yes, right? They need to lower the volume down. Like, phew, he's talking to us. And the extroverted women in the he will go, oh man, you're saying I can't you know, be extroverted and loud and boisterous? Guess what Peter's not talking about? He's not talking about the volume of your voice. He's not talking about whether you're extroverted or introverted and you need to become an introvert. He's not at all talking about that. But he's talking about gentleness in a way that means humility, that you're humble, which is really being opposed to being harsh and abrupt. Gentleness means humility as opposed to being harsh and abrupt. And as one commentator said, it's, quiet has a sense of quiet essence of peace as opposed to the loudness of war or a calming presence, he says, particularly when there are things that could become warlike. To calmly pursue peace while others around create war. See, sometimes women in marriages can create war by being aggressive and abrupt and argumentative. Men can be exactly the same, can't they? But saying here is that, no, 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 gentleness and quiet of spirit is someone who is seeking to pursue peace while the world around us is trying to create war. Submission is being gentle and meek. And he asks us, he asks wives who have been rescued, redeemed, he's saying, hey, be gentle and quiet spirited. I wonder, though, I wonder, you know, if we flip it to the men now, I wonder, do we, are we the same? Or as we seek after Calvin Klein undies or Tommy Hilfer t-shirts to the endless, you know, I don't know, hair appointments, the endless shopping, the endless gym work. Now, go to the gym, it's good. Not like running. They're good things to do. But I wonder if we made them so endless because of our identity. See, God, it's a character that matters most to God. Countercultural beauty. But we chase externals because we think they bring us happiness. You know, if, if you're a woman here this week and you've had a really terrible week at work, what are you tempted to do on a Saturday? You're tempted to say, husband, or to your friend, you know, you say, watch the kids, or if you're single, you go, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to go out and spend some money, buy some dresses, it's going to make me feel happy. You know, now, men might not go and buy a dress or a shirt, right? I wouldn't do that, but you might go play some sport. You might, go and, you might go and check out the latest car dealership and look around the cars. Because, see, countercultural hope and happiness is our next point. How do we live beautiful lives? It's countercultural hope and happiness. Hope and happiness cannot be placed in your husband. Because if you are only submitting because he is making you happy, the moment he lets you down, you're without hope and you're without happiness. Hope and happiness cannot be placed in your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Hope and happiness cannot be placed in your clothes and your figure. Do you realise, husbands, that you cannot make your wives happy? And wives, you cannot make your husbands happy because you will let them down. If we're placing our hope in fashion, if we're placing our hope in the externals, when our money and our bank dries up, what do we do? What happens if we're trusting and hoping in our happiness in our six-pack or our, our body and we lose our job 
We become disabled and we can't work out. We've lost our hope and our happiness. It's all gone. Whereas this passage says, where was Sarah's hope and happiness placed? It's interesting, it goes way back to Sarah in the Old Testament and the, and the women in the Old Testament saying, look where their hope and their happiness was placed. It wasn't in their husbands, it wasn't in their clothes, but it was placed in God. Have a look there at verse 5. For this is the way that the holy women of the past, had they adorned themselves, they put their hope in God. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Where was Sarah's hope and happiness? It was in Jesus. It was in God. See, Sarah wasn't afraid to submit because her hope was in God, not Abraham. Now, if you read the story from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22 about Abraham, who God chose to be the the father of the great nation through whom Jesus would come, if you read that story, I think you'll pretty work out pretty quick that Abraham isn't exactly the best husband. He does some pretty stupid things. He does some good things. He does some stupid things. And yet imagine if Sarah found her hope in Abraham for the promise of a child. Imagine if Sarah had hope in Abraham that life would turn out well for her. He would let her down. But in the midst of everything she went through, she had hope in God. Our hope and our happiness is not in the things, but it's in God. And here's just a quick side note, which is really interesting about the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know, you could easily read this and say, well, the man will just say and the woman will do. Now, in Genesis chapter 21, Sarah comes up to Abraham and says to Abraham, hey, mate, we've got a problem. We need this to happen. And what does Abraham do? He goes, oh, he listens. He listens and God says the same. He listens. And he does. I want to ask this question though now is, in this room today, where is your hope and happiness placed? Where is it? Maybe you're here for the first time and you're not a Christian. I want you to think about that question more deeply. Where is your hope and your happiness placed? At the moment, if it's in other things like clothing, if it's in things like your body, if it's in things like your job, one day they will let you down and your world will be shattered. But why could Sarah, someone who was a a foreigner, a refugee, someone who was living in exile, why could she live life the way she did because her hope was in God? And I encourage you today, turn to Jesus, come to him and find out more about him. It'd be a wonderful thing to do. Because hope and happiness can be found in him because he's eternal. Okay, number four, countercultural intimacy. How do we live beautiful lives? Well, here, he's, he's now got the first seven, right? He's going to speak to the husbands. Countercultural intimacy. See, what I love about this passage is that Peter elevates women and their worth, their dignity, and their value. Remember Nero last week? Nero killed his mom. He poisoned a couple of wives. He was a brutal man. Because, see, in this culture, women had no place. Women would stay at home and the men would go out. There really wasn't an intimate relationship between the husband and the wife. The, the wife was sort of there to have kids and to help him and, and do those kind of things. But the gospel transforms that. Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 
For those who are husbands, we are to seek and to lead our wives and our families. We are meant to lead in a way that gloriously represents Christ who laid his life down for the bride. Who was selfless love, who was filled with grace, filled with mercy. And he sought the good of the other. And here it says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live. Now, what's this mean to live? Well, to live is to live under the same roof. But it's actually more than that, right? It's to live together. In the ancient world, it was sort of, yes, the wife was there, but not there. But what he's saying here is, right, you're to dwell under the same roof in intimacy. This word here, in a way, it's dwelling together, but it's to cherish your wife. But it's also to have intimacy in sex. That's what it's, it's alluding to that. Isn't that transformational? Whereas our world paints that sex is about you, whereas here Peter's saying, no, men, in a culture where women are seen as nothing, you are to have intimacy with them, to love them, to cherish them, to honour them. So the gospel flips sex on its head. And it's not about you, it's about the other. Live with your wives. Be considerate of them. Know them. But also honour and respect them. Did you see that? And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, what does this weaker flesh mean? Vessel, weaker vessel. Can I tell you what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that they're not as intelligent and they're not as emotionally intelligent, right? It's not saying that, right? Women are actually often quite better at that than men. It's not saying that, but what it's meaning, it's just purely meaning... And let's be real, we know this is the case. Now, it's not the case in every circumstance, because right? I'm sure you can come back to me and find a, body, a weightlifting woman who could lift more weight than a man. But what it's, really what it's just saying is it's, it's, it's saying, men, you are stronger and they are weaker physically. But in no way are they inferior. In fact, Peter is very clear to you. Notice that he says you're co-heirs with Christ. No way. He's very, very, very clear that you are equal. Because see, a man who's got strength can abuse, can't he? He can use that strength in bad ways. A tall person like myself, you can use your height in authoritative ways that are not helpful. Honour your wife. She's of great value to you. Revere her with a high regard. Love her. Cherish her. Be intimate with her. Some guys show more intimacy and care and worth of their cars than they do of their wives. Some men will go out after work every day and come home and be distant. And be distant from their family. But as godly men who have been transformed by the gospel, we step up and we aren't afraid to show love, intimacy, and, and cherish our wives as they ought to be cherished. See, a man is to know her intimately, to know her likes, her dislikes, her preferences, her needs, so that he can love her, care and lead her, and love her as they both seek to serve Jesus. You know, as men, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this personally, and it's something that we're not that good at doing, is that when we come home, we are often distant. The day of the week, our minds are so overwhelmed with what's going on that we can come home and we can be distant from our wives and from our family. That's something we've got to work on. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, The crown a man wears in marriage is first one of thorns. He's saying to us as men, the crown that we wear is a crown of thorns that Jesus wore, that we lay down our lives. 
because we have a cultural story that the world, the media and the shops and the governments, they're trying to write a, a storyline where women are equal. And I think that's good, right? And yet the reality of culture, when you walk into a shop, when you watch a movie on Netflix, is that they're creating pin-up women with bikinis on billboards as you walk into shops and as you watch movies that say you are not enough unless you look like Jennifer Hawkins. Do you see the contradiction our society has? Whereas for Peter, he says no. He says, no, 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 women are equal. And what he speaks here is countercultural in the first century. Peter thinks more of women in our culture than what most people do. He sees them as so equal that he says Christ died for them. Do you notice that? Christ died for you, he died for me. But maybe just for a moment, if I speak to some of the single men, be careful with the words that you use. Don't belittle, don't degrade. Remember that they're your sisters in Christ. Be careful. Be countercultural. Because the gospel flips everything. The gospel flips, not only it flips the way we submit to government, but it flips the way we submit in work, but it also flips what a beautiful marriage looks like. How are we to live? Beautiful lives. Well, it's countercultural submission, countercultural beauty, countercultural hope and happiness, and countercultural intimacy. May we shine like the stars. May our lives, our marriages, may they just flourish in a way that the world says, wow, what's happened here? Maybe a beautiful story that people see. Because I think marriage, I was thinking about this, but I think marriage is a bit like ballroom dancing. When I was 2002, I was about 19, and I decided I took up ballroom dancing for about a year. Now, that was in parks. I was called Twinkle Toes Jimmy on the dance floor. I really wasn't Twinkle Toes Jimmy on the dance floor at all, but I was, pretty, I was actually thinking of getting my wife up and showing you how to ballroom dance, but that actually would show you how to lead badly. But I don't know about you, but ballroom dancing is actually very beautiful. It's very beautiful when it's effortless. It's very beautiful when they work together. Because in ballroom dancing, what do you need? You need someone who's going to lead and who they lead with their feet. Ballroom dancing, you lead with your feet. But in no way in ballroom dancing is the man who's leading actually forcing the person they're dancing with to follow. But they joyfully follow. And as that works together, it is something that is magnificent, something that is beautiful, and something that you want to watch over and over and over again. May we look like that. Just may we shine the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to live beautiful lives. May the gospel of the living hope that we have in Christ shape everything we do, everything we say for your glory, for the sake of Christ. And Father, I pray for those who may be in marriages where one partner does not know Jesus. Lord, work there. May you give them wisdom in knowing how to live and to love and to care, to shine the light of Jesus in that relationship, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.